0: If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Coran.
1: That's what everybody. We are back in this is episode 149 JavaScript, right in HTML? There's a question mark there. i got to do an inflection. JavaScript right in HTML? <gasps> Maybe the gas works. But anyway. Uh, wait, what's this? Hang on, a, hang on a second here, Mike. How much, uh, how long is this title here? I misread this. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, there's more to this title. Okay, here we go. Here's a comedic intro. <clears throat> We're gonna do a little bit of voice acting here. Episode 149, JavaScript right in HTML? HTMX with Carson. Ah, there you go. There's my audition. I like it. Hit, hit me up, Sony, for the next Jack and Daxter or whatever you're doing. Now, I'm Matt, that's Mike, and this week we'll be talking to Carson, the creator of HTMX, a library that helps you do more in your HTML. That's why we're HTML all the things. No, that's not why, but that kind of works a little bit. But anyway, if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review, or rating in your podcast app. Join us in our Discord server or share this with your friends. Auction style, rapid fire, Carson is the creator of the HTMX library. Like I just said, HTMX is an extension to HTML that brings JavaScript-like manipulation right to HTML tags. Carson takes us through his previous projects that inspired his thinking, or this thinking, excuse me, as well as his passion for locality of behavior. We talk about Tailwind, Hyperscript, and much more in this one, so I really hope you enjoyed this call as much as we did. Let's cut to that now. Alrighty, everybody. We have Carson on the line here. Now, I know I, I know I already did a little brief introduction, but we have a pretty loaded episode and a pretty interesting product, pretty interesting tool, HTMX. So, Carson, before we jump right into all that technical stuff, though, how's it going? What's going on? How's your COVID life? And uh, what's uh, what, what's going on?
2: Uh, hey, well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, things are going going pretty well. Um, it seems like COVID is uh, is winding down a little bit. I'm uh, in the northern part of the United States and in a less populated area, so uh, things are almost back to normal here. Um, and actually, I should mention just for it's an interesting historical note: HDMX exists because of COVID. Um, oh, there you go. Oh, wow. uh, my, uh, I uh, it. HMX was originally, uh, it's, it's based on a library called intercooler.js, which has been around for a long time, but um, that library was dependent on jQuery. And uh, we can talk about, you know, the more history in the future, but just for the introduction, um, when COVID hit, I decided I wanted to see if I could pull out the jQuery dependency in HTMX just to have a project to keep myself sane. And uh, it, tur- it turned out that I could, and uh, that-, that was the-, the beginning of HTMX. So um, at that- that the start of this, this whole uh, debacle, uh, HTMX was one of the things that helped keep me, uh, keep me sane.
1: That's that's, awesome. that's we, we had that conversation actually with one of our um one of our other guests recently and and yeah, that's what he was saying too is you know you just you got to keep busy and that's and at least the digital world the programming world keeps us busy in in these lockdown you know stay inside times.
2: Yeah, um, and yeah, again, you guys, you're 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 pretty far north too, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, near um, near Toronto. Yeah.
2: Right, so when it's cold, it's nice to be able to program for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
3: <laughs> yeah, cold or rainy. Right now, it's all rainy outside my window, so uh, I'm happy yeah. we're inside recording. <laughs> that's for right. sure. Um, but yeah, like that—that's that, a really good like introduction to how you started. I didn't realize it actually started so recently. So congratulations on your success then, because I feel like it's growing pretty rapidly. Um, I'm hearing about it all over the place right now on, on Twitter and all that. So it's, it seems like it's doing well. Uh, and it's interesting that you started it just out of the concept of like, Hey, let's get rid of jQuery because we've been talking a lot recently for some reason about jQuery with other libraries and stuff like that. It seems like it's everyone appreciates it, right? Like everyone's appreciate appreciates jQuery, but we've, we're starting to realize that like the new age of JavaScript has kind of replaced every part of what jQuery used to be. So how was that process before we even get into HTMX? How was the process of removing jQuery? Was it as straightforward as I'm thinking it is right now? Or was there a lot of gotchas?
2: Um, I found it very straightforward. JavaScript, I'm. Yes, we'll probably talk about it. I'm not a huge fan of JavaScript as a programming language. I found a way to, to program in JavaScript that I can... Uh, sort of keep my mind wrapped around. Um, but that being said, it's come a huge, uh, huge distance since 10 years ago, which is when I started uh, Intercooler.js. Um, and uh, I, it, it wasn't much more code to rewrite the whole thing in Vanilla.js. And I, there's no reason, there was, there was not a lot of jquery stuff that i missed very much um the other thing about jquery is it has its own flavor and style and so you uh you end up getting kind of sucked into into that flavor and style if uh if you use it as a base whereas um, by going to vanilla JS, i could write it more the way i wanted to write it um and not have it be this mix of two different styles. I tend to do a more functional style kind of hidden within a bigger JavaScript object. So that's the way I like to code things. And the jQuery to to an extent encourages sort of a functional style as well, but it just has its own sort of flavor. So um, I was really happy with how it turned out and I didn't find it very hard. I think it took me about two and a half weeks to do the port. Um, Now I really knew what I wanted uh, and so that helped all, an awful lot. Um, but it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't a major issue.
3: That's cool. I, I, I'm glad that that's becoming kind of like an easier process. Cause I remember before it was kind of a disaster, but yeah, J, I totally agree with you. JavaScript has the ability to kind of, it's not the ideal thing in the world, but it—it it is possible to make it however you want it, which is good. And you have a lot of flexibility there, so it's good that you kind of uh, kind of piggybacked on that. But before we get any further, let's let's talk about HTMX. Like, let's give give us your Cliff's notes on what is HTMX.
2: Right, so HTMX is a JavaScript library. Um, and uh, before people kind of hang up, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's not your standard JavaScript library. Um, so what it does is it, it, uh, it extends HTML within this idea of being a hypertext. So it's an extension of HTML. And uh, what it's trying to do is remove the constraints that normal HTML Um, has on it. So uh, in normal HTML, uh, we're all familiar with anchor tags, for example, anchor tags and forms. And these are the two main ways that we can interact with a server if you're just using plain old HTML. Um, You click on a link, it fetches a new page and then it renders that new page or you submit a form um, and that form updates something and then maybe a redirect happens, uh, you know, however you're handling it um, and then a a page gets rendered again. And so with HTMX, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, let's take that model, um, but let's extend it. So let's, uh, rather than only anchor tags and forms being able to make requests, let's make it so that any element can uh, issue a server request. And uh, instead of just the click uh, event on anchor tags or the submit event on forms, let's make it so that uh, any event can trigger one of these server requests. And then finally, let's, uh, instead of replacing the entire screen, which can be kind of clunky, browsers have gotten better at it, but it can still be pretty clunky. Let's make it such that you can replace whatever elements on the uh, on the page you want to and uh, so we're really generalizing that concept of HTML and uh, making HTML more powerful hypertext and uh, so you don't you don't write JavaScript for the most part when you're working with HTML instead you add attributes to your uh, HTML that look pretty familiar. To people who are who have done HTML work in the past. Um, so, you know, on the front page of HTMX.org, there's an example with a button which has an HX post attribute on it. And that HX post, the, the value of that attribute is slash clicked. And then there's another attribute that says HX swap. And uh, the value for that attribute is outer HTML. And what that tells, HTMX will process that uh, those attributes. And what it will do is it will, when that button is clicked, it'll issue an AJAX request um, to the slash clicked URL. And then it will take the response from that, uh, from that URL, which is in HTML. It's not in JSON like most people think of when they think of Ajax. Um, It'll issue that request, take that response and then swap it for the outer HTML of that button. So it'll effectively replace that button with whatever HTML is replaced by the clicked URL. And so it just, it allows you to take that traditional model of uh, web development, which is, you know, very unique and interesting, an interesting aspect of uh, the internet and uh, and drive it, Drive it uh, toward to more interesting UIs. Use it to be able to create more interesting uh, user experience. Yeah. yeah speaking.
1: A- speaking. Oh, sorry, Mike. Go ahead. No, no, Go ahead, Matt. I, I was going to say, speaking of user experience too, Mike and I had been discussed earlier in the uh, right before the show. I should say is that what's interesting is like the UX from the developer perspective is is sort of almost like a productivity machine, right? Because You always want to do everything you can on the keyboard, you know, even just down to like copy paste and everything. That's why we have keyboard shortcuts. So you're not reaching for the mouse. You're not switching documents all the time. And it sounds like with HTMX, you're spending whatever percentage it is, but a much higher percentage of time just in the HTML. So you can, if you know what you're doing and you're familiar with HTMX, you can just rip through a web page or rip through whatever it is you're building.
2: Uh, Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Everything lives in... HTML now, or not everything, but a a lot more lives in uh, in your HTML. All your server server interactions, and this is a problem that you had with jQuery, right? Because with jQuery, what you had was event handlers that were typically hooked in in a separate file in JavaScript files somewhere else. Um, Some people did them in line, but for the most part, they were added sort of off somewhere else. And here you're putting your server interactions directly in the HTML, just like you do with anchor tags and with forms. Um, So you're correct, and everything is in HTML. And that's a huge uh, productivity boost. It also makes full stack development um, a more... uh, Plausible scenario for most people, um, because you don't have such a massive front end stack now. Uh, your, your stuff is all back end, or for the most part is back end, um, and uh, your front end is specified in terms of this very familiar and you know reasonable enough for most uh, people who want to do full stack uh, development manner uh, that just works the traditional way that the web always has.
3: Yeah. And I, I like one of the comparisons I like that I heard, I don't know if it was on another podcast or something like that, that you were on, but it's like the tailwind CSS for JavaScript. So it, it, yeah. it, yeah, it's a really cool paradigm kind of in your head where you can write a lot of functionality and a lot of design and everything else all in your HTML really quickly. And I like that you also mentioned that, you know, if you're a backend developer, this is kind of in your wheelhouse because you're really comfortable with the back end. You can design all the back end hooks and stuff like that. And maybe you don't want to spend a lot of time learning a bunch of stuff on the front end. Well, you can serve all the HTML you want from the back end and tie it to these HTMX hooks and HTMX attributes and never have to worry about JavaScript, or at least very, very um, limited amounts of worrying on, on the JavaScript side. So it allows the developers to kind of separate, like, stay within their lane a little bit more, which makes it a lot easier for us to kind of ramp up on a project, especially if we're working on it on our own. And like you said, the full stack development aspect of it is really, really convenient. It, it was the same reaction that I had with Tailwind, in fact. And that's why like, I really kind of resonated with that comparison where I'm not a huge fan of doing layouts. I'm more of a front-end business logic developer. Like, I'm more in the JavaScript side of things. But I really didn't like doing layouts. And when I use Tailwind, it removed that effort for me to actually have to go into a separate file, have to learn, like, you know, manage multiple instances of something. It's all localized in one thing. Like, it's all localized in one uh, file, which, and we'll talk about in a second, like, it's a positive and a negative. But in terms of speed of development and in terms of familiarity, it's a huge bonus.
2: Yeah, that's right. And they they're, I think we've kind of lost since we've really the industry is specialized in a front end and back end at this point, um, with typically a JSON API sitting between the two. And, uh, unfortunately, the industry has really lost the, the full stack developer is a very valuable asset when it makes sense, um, because you're able to optimize across the entire stack. Um, you're able to push optimizations that require both some front-end work as well as back-end work to to get right. Um, and uh, we may talk more about security implications and things like that when we get into the rest discussion. Um, but uh, just from a from a practical standpoint, if you have the ability to both change the front end and the back end, you're you have a lot more levers to uh, push and pull make things like performance uh, uh, better for your website. And that can drive better user experience rather than having, you know, 10 layers between the front end and the back end where it's it's almost impossible to optimize across all of them. So by removing those layers, by you know, tearing down some complexity, uh, you give yourself uh, potentially a lot more power to, uh, to provide a better user experience.
3: Right, exactly. And I, I think it... It is another paradigm that you you kind of have to get comfortable with. But again, it is specialized to those people that are more of one developer than the other kind of thing. Like if they understand the backend a little bit more, or if they understand just like the HTML structure a little bit better and don't want to spend too, too much time worrying about all the other things. So it makes full stack development easier. Totally agree. Um, But one thing it does do is kind of goes against the flow a little bit of the program of like the new age programmers paradigm in the sense that like right now the whole industry is like thinking about separation of concerns so separating out all of your little things so all your business logic stays in javascript files all of your uh, css and like layout logic stays in css files all of your components are componentized into separate files so you have like a million files for one project all referencing to the kind of like the same thing like you can have for one view you can have 10, 15 different files, totally possible. But with this kind of paradigm and the tailwind paradigm, again, we're going to a locality of behavior. This is something I heard you mention, I'm stealing it kind of from you, uh, but I'm sure it is like an industry thing. But I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Like what what inspired you to do it more of in the locality rather than the separation of concerns?
2: Um, yeah, so locality of behavior is the terminology that I'm trying to use uh, for that. And you can go to the HTMX website and click on the Talk tab, and there's a, a very short essay. Um, but uh, the the initial quote for it is, the, the primary feature of easy maintenance is locality. Locality, locality being things being close to one another, is that characteristic of source code that enables a programmer to understand that source by only looking at a small portion of it. And uh, that's by Richard Gabriel, who was a big Lisp developer back in the day. Um, And so the, the locality behavior principle that I'm trying to push is the behavior of a code unit should be as obvious as possible by only looking at that code unit. And so if you are looking at a web page, for example, you want to be able to see what that web page does pretty much just by looking at that web page. And this grew really out of my experience with jQuery, where you would have these crazy... Uh, event handler hooked up, goodness knows where in your web app. Um, sometimes you know if you weren't disciplined about it, it could turn into a real mess. Um, but it was always difficult looking at a button, for example, to figure out exactly what that button did. Maybe you had to look by uh, you had to do an ID search. There, it could be a, could have been hooked up by a class or some complex path, or it could have been dynamic. You know, there's just a million ways for for that code to get hooked into your button, and it was very difficult uh, often to debug and understand what was going on uh, with your DOM. And so I wanted a library when I did InterCore, I wanted a library that surfaced that. I hadn't formalized the concept, but that's what I had in mind when I started um, thinking about this. And uh, as I did HTMX, I tried to formalize this into something that you could use, because whenever you talk about this, as you point out, people say, what about the separation of concerns? And that's a design Concern. It's something that you need to keep in mind, but design concerns often trade off against one another. And uh, uh, separation of concerns, while certainly good in some cases, um, can also be bad for this locality of behavior and can make it very difficult to understand and to maintain code um, uh, because you're hurting the locality of behavior. And most of your listeners have probably been in this situation where some CSS change completely breaks everything, and it's really difficult to understand why that is. Um, and were that an inline, uh, were it something like tailwinds, it would be much more obvious what change had broken it. Um, because you can see, oh, it's right here. It's telling me exactly how this particular piece of code is laid out. Um, and there are other technology. I think this this general concept is getting more popular and other Technology that uh, your listeners have probably heard of that I think exhibits this design, this design sort of uh, sensibility is Alpine JS, where you're embedding JavaScript directly in the DOM um, in order to do things so that you don't have to look around for uh, 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 for these event handlers. Um, And so I think it's becoming more popular. People are realizing, okay, separation of concerns is good, you know, but there are negatives associated with it as well. And it hurts other aspects of your project. And so this is my attempt to, uh, to formalize that, that terminology around exactly what separation of concerns is hurting.
3: Yeah, totally. I, I completely agree with you. And I think the trend is going towards that a little bit right now, too. Because stuff like frameworks, for instance, Vue, Svelte, those newer frameworks, um, they are absolutely doing locality of behavior. Like all the component logic, all the CSS and all the HTML is in one component, right? All of them uh, like contained. And like you said, Alpine JS, you can kind of throw that into any project you want uh, really easily. And that also contains everything into one file. And personally, I like it that way. And I think it makes a lot more sense when I'm like for, for myself for coding. Um, I can understand when it becomes a little bit more complicated in larger team environments, maybe, but again, there's, there's trade-offs for everything. So I don't think that that's a concern of any sort. I just wanted to kind of point it out that it is a little bit of a different way of thinking and it's something that you, you would have to adjust to.
2: Yeah, it definitely is. Um, and I, I do, some people say, Oh, you know, it's okay for small teams, but it doesn't scale. And I think the jury's still out on that. I have to be honest. Um, I, you know, I've seen, uh, separation of concern hurt large teams as much as it's hurt small teams. And so, um, you know, I think that there's, there's more to this, this idea than, than some people give it credit. HTMX runs into this sometimes as well, where people say, Oh, that'd be great for a small site. But I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, I u- I'm using Interpol JS on a, on a very large Rails application, for example, and uh, it's scaled and uh, the maintenance on it is great. Because, once again, we have locality behavior. When you go to a page that you have to maintain or modify in some way, you, just, you can see what it's doing immediately. Um, and it's very obvious. So um, I, I think that there this, this concept has legs even in larger organizations, potentially.
3: Do, do you see it as something that uh, you would combine with a framework of some sort? Or is it something that you would use on, on, as a standalone thing?
2: Um, you know, for for me for the types of websites i typically build i i i would think of it more functionally i would look at each sub problem within an app and ask is a is a heavier framework necessary for this part of it um and some parts probably not and some parts maybe so so um you know one example i often give you probably heard this before is uh htmx isn't right for a website that is a th- it's a 3d game of some sort you know that's obviously not something htmx is designed for on the other hand, HTMX might be good for the uh, config page, you know, for the settings page for that web app. Um, and so that's, you know, I would look at it more functionally rather than, you know, should you mix these two together? I think HTMX, the, the closer you are to forms and the original, you know, sort of way that the, the uh, web worked, the, the more HTMX is gonna, going uh, um, it, it, gonna go with, with the grain of your, your application. And then the the further and the more dynamic you get, so if you're doing, again, like an online um, collaborative editor, for example, that's something that HTMX probably isn't going to be as much help for, at least the uh, the collaborative editing part.
3: Right. Gotcha. Yeah. And it, it makes sense. Exactly. So you use it when you need to use it. When it makes sense to use, just like with anything, really, like a lot of people will spin up an entire, you know, massive framework to build out a landing page. I mean, in some contexts, it does make sense to do that if you're building, if you're planning to just expand on that or something down the line. But in most contexts, why? Like, what's what's the point? Um, but moving on here a little bit, and you've already touched on this, like, but I, I just want to get a little bit of a deeper backstory. Why did you decide to build it? And maybe you can talk about, I don't know if you built Intercooler.js or not, but maybe you can talk about that logic process too. Like I understand that HTMX was kind of a a thing, a project that came out of COVID, but what's the deeper reason? Like what problem yourself for yourself, like an example that you were trying to solve?
2: Yeah, so uh, Intercooler.js came out of an experience I had with a startup that I worked at uh, about a decade ago um, where I was, this was, you know, very early on. I guess it wasn't that early, but JavaScript was still sort of in its, I guess, third wave at that point. Um, and people were using jQuery for the most part. And I had a big, complicated table um, that I was trying to build automatically or, you know, dynamically in JavaScript. And uh, I, when the table got very large, it turned out to be extremely slow. And uh, I was at wits end with the problem. and just out of desperation almost, uh, I tried rendering the table, the entire table on the server side, and then just slamming it into the DOM. And lo and behold, it worked. Um, and it worked way faster than the JavaScript that I was capable of well, writing at the time anyway. And uh, I, I thought to myself, well, if that works for this table, why not try and use it in other places in the app? And it worked really well there. And uh, eventually I decided to form, it started off sort of as a, a, an, a, excuse me, a jQuery plugin. And I decided to formalize it as a standalone library. Uh, and that became Intercooler.js. And I released that, I think in 2013. Um, and, uh, I, I went a little crazy in Intercooler.js. I, I didn't, kinda, I hadn't thought it through uh, very, uh, from a first principle standpoint. So I, I threw a lot of stuff into Intercooler.js. And, uh, but it grew pretty health, uh, in a pretty healthy manner. Um, I think it's at about, uh, four, 4,700 stars on GitHub, which is, you know, for me is a, is a good size, uh, open source project. Um, not obviously competing with any of the big, uh, frameworks that are out there, but you know, it's enough. And, uh, that kind of, that worked great and I uh, used that in successfully in multiple startups, uh, since then. And then this last summer was when I decided, okay, let's, let's clean up Intercooler JS now that I understand what it is. Cause when I started off, I was just, it was a very practical project. I didn't, I wasn't thinking, uh, at a, sort of from first principles at all about it. Um, but the, you know, COVID, uh, say what, say, say what we well will about it. It gave, uh, gave me an opportunity to take a step back and think, okay, what am I really trying to do here? <laughs> Would uh and take all the lessons of the last uh, eight years and and uh, produce a, a piece of software that's a a better version of what I'm trying to accomplish with intercooler.js. JS. Uh,
1: let me let me touch on that really quick, actually. So the the concept you're saying, you know, you didn't do Intercooler JS right from first principle, and and that's actually something funny enough. Mike and I had a a meeting earlier today, and I was um I have an IT background, as I mentioned several times to the audience, and I worry about infrastructure more than i do the thing and so what i always do is i always worry about um getting everything set up with the right framework not literally a js framework like the right framework like having the right support network having the right ideas and stuff first so much so that i rarely get anything done so now that you've done you know a couple open source projects like this what like what is your secret what is your thought process on tackling something where like you you know by your own admission didn't even really know what intercooler js really was personally i would be so into trying to figure out if i was the creator what is intercooler who's going to use it how do they get support and this and that that i would probably not even make it so what is that thing that like just allows you to like jump in what's your process for that getting over that hurdle If, if you even experience that really
2: yeah, I, I think for me it was having a motivating problem. And then once I saw, for, you know, for my own use, what I needed, I, uh, it was pretty straightforward what I wanted to have happen. Um, but yeah, you know, I will say there's been a lot of, it's, it's been psychologically difficult, particularly early on with Intercooler. People said very mean things on the internet about Intercooler. Yes. <laughs>
1: Oh, geez, yeah, of um, course. <laughs> it, it,
2: can, it, can, it can be pretty discouraging. I'm, you know, I'm a human just like everyone else. And so when you pour it a lot into something and people uh, dog it, it's always difficult. Um, I've gotten a thicker skin about this stuff and I've also gotten a little older uh, and I think that helps as well. But um I think for me, I just, I kind of said, you know, early on, I say, okay, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere and I don't care if it's going to go anywhere, but, I have a feeling this is the right thing, so I'm just going to do it. Um, now I've done that at times and it hasn't worked out at all. I can probably, you know, I've got 10 other projects that haven't gone anywhere. So I I don't know if I can necessarily recommend it as an approach. Um, (laughs) but it appears, it appears to have worked out pretty well for Intercooler and HTMX. Um, you know, but I, I, again, I can't, I can't say that's just me getting lucky, um, and figuring out this, this idea that, uh, has some legs, or if uh, if there was some aspect of the process that actually made it work. Um, but you know, I, I, with with when intercooler when it first came out, I was really convinced that this was a good idea, and I did go around and try and convince people, hey, you should you should use this. I um, I fought a bunch with people on the comments and Hacker News and so forth. <laughs> um, and I just as I've gotten older, I, I I care less, and it's been more successful and. You hear that a lot from people, and I just—I don't know—I hesitate to, to hesitate to recommend it because I think there's just so much randomness and noise. There's probably, you know, other people who've done stuff that's similar, and uh, it this went and there's didn't. I've got a programming language that I worked on for a long time called Gosu uh, that didn't go anywhere. It's a JVM programming language that I just poured, you know, a decade of my life into. <laughs> And then that kind of flops. So, uh, so I don't know. I, it's, 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 you never know. <laughs> you just never know what I would say. Yeah.
1: That's that, that's that kind of like idea, right? Where people always say, you know, just keep trying stuff until, until something works. And, you know, that we've had that, you know, said over and over on the show. We've, we've mentioned it a few times. Other guests have mentioned it a few times and it kind of stays, or kind of goes along with the idea of just, like just code, whether you're learning code, just code yeah. it up, whether you're trying to make something that's a product, that's an open source project, that's not an open source project, whatever it is, just code. And I think that that seems to always be the answer, you know, just just do it, get it out there and see what happens.
2: Yeah, I think so. And don't be too uh, don't be too worried if it doesn't go either. Don't you know, You, you we're coders and we want to write code and we care about our code and we like our approach. Approaches that we come up with, um, but you, it's there's a little bit of survivor bias here. Right? Anyone who has been moderately successful is going to say, "Oh, I, I just stuck with it." But then there's a lot of people that aren't successful that stuck with it too. So um, you know, it's I, I think for me, anyways, psychologically, when I stopped caring too much about the what people said on the internet, that helped a lot. <laughs> that that made it a lot easier for me to just keep doing what I was doing. Um, and, you know, it's worked out, it's worked out fairly well for HTMX. Um, there's another thing we may talk about, um, hyperscript. And that's another example of something that I just did it because I wanted to do it. Um, and that I don't anticipate will be anywhere near as successful as HTMX. Um, but I'm going to keep working on it because I like that. I like that style of, uh, programming. I like that problem. So, um, so I would say if, if it's a problem that you're interested in, um, you know, just, Try not to think too much about what other people think of your solution. Obviously, you want to listen to feedback. You don't want to ignore people. But uh, people are going to say mean stuff about you <laughs> on the internet. So, uh, Of course, of course. And and be a little indifferent towards it.
3: Yeah, which is like a lot easier said than done. As soon like A lot of people out there probably are thinking like, oh, I just want to listen. But really, that's all you listen to. <laughs> like when, when you have a successful <laughs> yeah. project or a not successful project, whatever, uh, even on the podcast, like... We have some ratings. Most of our ratings are great, but a couple of our ratings are bad. And those are the only ones like I, I listen to for some reason. And it's bad. Yeah, and no. I understand it's bad. And it's psychologically like it's not good. But yeah, that's the human nature. Like that's literally human nature. So it is something you have to kind of battle with with yourself. It's not something that you should ha- like drive all your decisions But it's just the reality of the situation where, you know, you're going to get the negative feedback and you're going to have to be able to handle it. So that's something that you should at least prepare for, I would say, and uh, kind of try to drive through. And with that, like, how do you do it now? Like now that you've grown a little bit and you've, you have that empathy a little bit uh, worked out, how do you maintain, like, how do you, you know, maintain a project like this? How do you maintain the upkeep? Like, I'm sure you get issues brought up all the time and, uh, what is it like on the day to day? Is it something that you have to spend hours on? Is it something that you spend hours on a week or something? Like how, how do you approach it?
2: I usually try to take uh, a week or a couple days in a week and do work on it. I find I work better when I'm focused on the problem rather than trying to come in and fix something, you know, just fix one bug a day or something like that. I just, I need more time. To, I'm I'm a little bit older, so I need more time to get all the, get my brain into the state (laughs) and get everything built up again in my head, how this stuff's working. Um, So I like to do concentrated work. Um, HTMX, fortunately, isn't a a super complicated piece of software. It's not gigantic. Um, And uh, I wrote it in a relatively functional way. It's gotten a little uh, out of control in a few places. But um, for the most part, I can understand what's going on. And then we have a very good test suite as well. For it, um, so it is. Yeah, you know, I, again, just full disclosure. There are times when I look at the GitHub issue backlog and get a little hopeless. Um, but uh, at the same time, that test suite is for me is really my safety blanket. I feel like I'm not, at least if I try and fix something, I'm not going to break everyone's code when I release a new version of HTMX. And um, the other thing about it, I think one good. Uh, aspect of taking a step back and doing some first principle analysis is that I think HTMX um, has gotten a lot of stuff right. And so I don't anticipate a ton of churn in HTMX uh, like you see in some other libraries because I'm not going to redo everything. I'm not going to rewrite it. Um, HTMX is uh, intercooler 2.0 um, and really the only problem... I had two problems with intercooler 1.0, which was number one, the dependency... And jQuery. And then number two, I got a little too crazy. And so um, HTMX, I pulled out some of those things. I put in a, a plugin or a, an extension mechanism um, that uh, takes some pressure off of the core library. And uh, so with that, I think that it and my, and my attitude towards HTMX is more of um, I, I want to be a good steward of it going forward. And we're, we're trying to drive forward this uh, notion of, uh, of hypermedia programming, of hypertext programming. And so this is a good tool for doing it. It's not going to get super fancy <laughs> beyond here. Uh, if you want super fancy, you can take a look at Hyperscript. Um, and so there, we have pressure release valves for, for my crazy ideas. Um, <laughs> and so so I think, you know, HTMX, uh, I'm pretty, it, I don't want to say I'm relaxed about it. There are definitely times when I get overwhelmed um, but it's not as ambitious a project as something like Vue or, or one of these other uh, libraries, where you've got tens of thousands of lines of JavaScript code to deal with. We're talking about three thousand lines of code and a pretty good test suite. You know, we'll be all right.
3: <laughs> yeah, and that—that that is, I think, a key to one to the success of a project like this, right? Like, if you design something on your own, you plan on maintaining something on your own and you put 100,000 lines of code into it, know that it's going to be a slog. Like, It's not going to be easy. The issues are going to pile up no matter what. No matter how good of a programmer you are, the issues are absolutely going to pile up. So I like this approach. Uh, It's a really great way to handle it. And I think it's good for our audience to kind of hear that aspect of it because it is a more mature kind of uh, mentality where you do consider the maintenance part, like very heavily due to the fact that before, you know, you, you you went through the intercooler JS problem. So you had that experience, but now hopefully to, to our audience, they won't have to go through that hiccup. So great insight there. Um, I guess let's move on to, let, let's move on to Hyperscript. I, I can't, I'm, I'm getting more and more interested in it as you're talking about it because I'm a huge fan of like passion projects. And I feel like Hyperscript is a huge passion for you. So I want to kind of emphasize it a little bit, and I want to let you kind of give the background, the backstory behind it, and what, what you plan on doing with it.
2: Sure. Um, Hyperscript is definitely a passion project. So for your audience, H- HTMX is a good, solid piece of technology, and uh, I-, I can heartily recommend it to the vast majority of web developers out there to at least take a look at it. Um, Hyperscript, on the other hand, is, uh, is a very speculative project. And uh so uh if you're a very brave person or you like more esoteric stuff, it might be worth taking a look at. Um and it's you can go to hyperscript.org, which shockingly was available at the start of last summer. Um and uh hyperscript really came out of when I, I was talking earlier about how with intercooler.js um I kind of thrown a kitchen sink of functionality at it. I didn't want to write any JavaScript anymore. I was sick of JavaScript and so um, one of the things that I had thrown in was a very rudimentary scripting language that lets you, it was kind of, you can think of it as being a very simplified version of Alpine.js. Um, and so when I created, uh, uh, HTMX, I, I, I noted that, uh, that, 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 attribute was going away. And, uh, but I thought to myself, well, I still feel like there's a scripting thing here. And, and Alpine.js sort of is in the same area, trying to, fix this problem with Java JavaScript, and with jQuery in particular, where you tend to hook up your event handlers elsewhere. And again, we're violating locality of behavior. And uh, so I thought to myself, well, um, if I have time after I'm done with HTMX, uh, I think this really deserves a full treatment as a scripting language. And I'm a, I'm a programming language person by uh, school my, my schooling background. I, I studied programming languages in, in grad school. And so uh, you know, I and I worked on a programming language for a very long time so it's it's a it's an, an area I'm comfortable with. And uh, uh I thought to myself, okay, well what would a, an ideal scripting language look like for the web um, that wasn't JavaScript? Um what would that look like? And uh um it occurred to me, I don't know how old how old are you uh, don't don't tell me how old you are, but have you ever heard of a uh, Hyper uh HyperTalk or HyperCard? Nope. Nope. <laughs> so if you're if you're old enough, um there was a, a piece of technology on the on the Mac called HyperCard. And HyperCard was sort of a precursor to uh the world wide web um and uh to hypertext in general. Um but it was a way to build uh applications for non-programmers. And there was a scripting language for it called uh hypertalk. And uh when I was thinking about what sort of a scripting language I uh, would want to create for the web, uh, I remembered that HyperTalk had this really nice event handling syntax. So you could say something like on click, you know, do whatever, do something. Um, but there was there was actual syntax baked into the language for adding event handlers to things. Um, and uh, it was really neat. Uh, a really neat syntax. And there's a bunch of other um idiosyncrasies uh to the language. Um It actually got used, you, some people have experience, usually bad experience, with something called Apple Talk, which is Apple's scripting language. Um <laughs> And uh, that has a similar background. It came out of the HyperTalk world. Um But so I, you know, I, I reached into my memory bank and said, okay, I'm going to use that as the basis for a web scripting language. And uh, so in, in this sense, it's very similar to HTMX and AlpineJS um, and Tailwind CSS in that you embed your scripts directly in HTML. And uh, so you, you use an attribute to do so. Um, that attribute is just the underscore, underscore equals, and then you put your old script in it. And so, um, for example, you could say something like uh, uh, on a button, you could say underscore equals, and then the value of that attribute would be Uh, something like on click toggle dot big text. And what that would do is when you click that button, it would toggle the big text class on that button. And, uh, so, and that's, so that's the flavor. It's this sort of natural language, uh, scripting language that lets you, uh, uh, embed behaviors directly into HTML. That's, a, that's, a, that's an overview. Of it. There's a ton going on in this programming language. So you let me know how deep you want me to get with
3: it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really cool. Uh, so is, is the idea like simplification and allowing like expanding out the programming world, like the, the web development world to more people because this will make it like easier to build apps from, from everything that you're saying, it sounds like it's uh, it's generalizing and making stuff easier to do. It's not adding a lot of like complex functionality. It's allowing you to do stuff simpler and more human readable. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one way to look at it. Um, The the scripting language is much simpler to, to read. Certainly some people find it difficult to write, particularly if you're used to JavaScript or another programming language, but it's very easy to read. Um, and I I think you've touched on something very important, which is I'm trying to make it more obvious what's going on on, on a web page, even for beginners. So um, a, a previous podcast I was on, we talked a little bit about Hyperscript, and he said that he was going to consider using it. The host said that they were going to consider using it to teach their kids how to do scripting. Because once again, JavaScript has this problem. Where do you put the event handlers? How do you do that? That's it's a hard thing to do. Whereas in Hyperscript, you just put the code directly on the thing that you want to do something. Um, so it's, it's it's much more obvious. Um, there, you know. Uh, so I think yes, uh, the idea here is to make scripting more uh, uh, readable and more uh, to, to enable locality of behavior when it comes to scripting. Uh, that isn't necessarily explicitly to make programming web programming easier for uh, for new people but it certainly does do that because it just removes this level of indirection and magic um, i'm you know i don't know i'm pretty comfortable with my ability to program at this point and i still find it much easier to, to program in this manner than to have a complex uh system set up with a bunch of indirection and things living in a bunch of different files so um, you know, I don't. I don't necessarily regard it as for beginners. Uh, on the other hand, it certainly is good for beginners. But I think, you know, uh, for people that may value simplicity and readability, uh, it, it's also very valuable. And that's not necessarily just beginners that, that have those values.
3: I I like this different perspective. Honestly, I'm I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad we went down that rabbit hole because there's just so much talk about the complex like javascript actually being too simple and not having enough not complex obviously people aren't saying it's not complex enough Like that's a ridiculous statement but like let's bring typescript into things i don't know if you've heard about typescript or used it it yeah. it does the opposite of what you're doing is that a correct statement
2: Um, I think to an extent you can think it certainly has a much more complicated type system that's layered on top of everything.
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: Um, So, and there is a lot more complexity in that world. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I would say exactly the opposite, but it's definitely in my mind, it's not, well, hyperscript is never going to be used on the back end. Mm -hmm. Famous last words, but it's not designed (laughs) for that. It's designed for small little things that you want to have done on the front end. And, uh, that aren't amenable to what HTMX is designed for, which is the server request response mechanism. So toggling menus, you know, toggling a class on a, on something is a sort of canonical example. That's, you don't want to make a full, you know, network request just to toggle a stupid class. And so that's, that's what hyperscripts for. Um, whereas something like, like TypeScript is, I mean, that's, it's trying to be a grown up programming language and that's, going to have grown-up programming language problems that are associated with it um, uh, namely complexity and you know you start worrying about threading models and all the rest of it one thing I should say about hyperscript is that um, and this is this is pretty nerdy but um, it's it's something called async transparent which means that when you're writing hyperscript um, you don't have to explicitly deal with promises I don't know how how deep you guys are in the JavaScript world but um, you don't have to explicitly deal with promises in Hyperscript. If something returns a promise, the Hyperscript runtime will actually wait for that promise to resolve before it continues. So you can write your code in a normal, linear way without writing any Vens or any Awaits or anything like that. You just write your normal code. And so that's my design center is I want this to just be an obvious script that just sits on the front end, and you don't have to do all this other stuff to make things work. Right. If I want to do a transition, a synchronous. I don't want to have to do something weird with it. I just want to, you know, say transition, you know, uh, opacity to zero over 500 milliseconds. And that, what I just said is actually legal hyperscript. Uh, transition my opacity to zero over 500 milliseconds. That's actually legal hyperscript. Um, and you don't have to worry about the fact that that's actually an asynchronous operation hyperscript runtime takes care all that for you so um so there's definitely a, a this idea of simplifying things is, I hope in all my software um, where it's just okay let's try and boil this down to what the front-end person ca- needs to care about
3: love it honestly like I I, I like the different perspective uh, I think it's a it definitely has a use case it doesn't mean that you know typescript is a bad thing it just means like you know different uses like Simplicity, complex, depending on what application you want, you can use whichever one. Options are never a bad thing. There should always be kind of competition like that. But I really, really appreciate you coming on, Carson. Uh, is there anything you want to plug other than HTMX? Obviously, is there anything you want to talk about that's left? Uh, I'm kind of going to give the floor to you as our honored guest.
2: <laughs> sure, I appreciate that. Well, I, you know, again, I appreciate you allowing me to come on and talk about HTMX. Um, I encourage people to go to htmx.org. Um, you can star the repo on GitHub. That's always nice to see that number going up. Um, and, uh, we do have a Discord, uh, and on Twitter, um, I use, uh, htmx underscore org, um, to tweet. Um, so you're welcome to, to follow, uh, follow me there. Um, and, uh, just in general, I think, you know, if you go to the talk page on, uh, on htmx, I've got, some more sort of theoretical stuff in the essays area. Um, I need to actually link. I've got some good stuff. We didn't really talk too much about REST, but um, I've got some good stuff about REST on the old JS uh, website, which I need to pull over. Because um, there's a... I think people are... You, you can see this burgeoning realization that REST has not worked out well for the API world, a- API world being the JSON API world. And I think I've got a pretty good explanation as to why that is. Um, but uh, we can maybe talk about that at, at another, uh, another time or we can, uh, you know, just people can do their own reading on it.
3: Yeah, I, I like that idea. Maybe we'll can have you on on a whole episode on REST because it seems like you're pretty passionate on the topic. And there's a lot to be said about APIs at this point. <laughs> there's just so yep. much out there. <laughs> so that, that's a good call. Uh, but yeah, other than that, uh, again, thank you for, for coming on. And uh, look forward to hearing from you in the future.
2: Yeah, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Have a great day.
1: Thanks, Carson. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. And we have, I was going to say the traditional weekly growth goals here, but we actually don't because we're two or three weeks ahead now. We had tons of great interviews with people, bunch of episodes in the bank. We used to be just one week ahead. Now we're several ahead. So the weekly growth goal isn't live anymore. It's like, How many weekly growth goals am I doing in a week? Like, it's just too much. So this week, we're just going to do a little, what are we working on this week? And I have something interesting. I've been working on Svelte, a little spoiler. But Mike, before I take it over with Svelte, what are you doing this week? Uh, I'm hitting my head against the desk. Okay.
3: (laughs) No, uh, I I am doing that. But it's because I'm working on a new, the new blockchain JavaScript interface called web Three um uh, traditionally it's built on ethereum and that's all fine and dandy but i'm doing it on a different coin called solana and unfortunately as the the developers have, have stated themselves it's an afterthought uh so a lot of the documentation is missing a lot of the documentation is outdated and a lot of the documentation is just straight out bad Like, I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't think I'm listening. Like, no one listening to us is a Solana developer, so I'm not worried that calling anyone out. But holy cow, is it bad. Like, it's really, really bad.
1: I mean, if it's an afterthought, I mean, at least they say it. Like, it's like, hey, man, this is an afterthought. Like, fair enough. I mean, this
3: is an afterthought. They say this is an afterthought. You should use this instead. But this instead, which is JSON RPC, is it's fine, I guess. Like, it's fine. But it also is kind of an afterthought. Like, it's also kind of dumb. Anyway. (laughs) Oh, my God. um, (laughs) It's... It's like I'm in – like blockchain development, especially when you're not on the main chains, is kind of like the Wild West right now. So it's like it's all up in the air. You have to kind of figure out stuff yourself. I ask questions on Discord and I get zero to like maybe one response that's extremely condescending and stuff like that. Like (laughs) it's not a fun time. There's not many senior – I've noticed that most of the developers are like kids essentially – that are playing around with this stuff. And th- there's not many senior <laughs> developers on there. So, like, it's really difficult to get good responses to, an- to questions. Um, So, yeah, that- that's been my last, like, week and a half, I'd say. And, again, bashing my head against the desk.
1: And, and you know what? Like, it's interesting, too, because, like, I'm a complete outsider to crypto. So, like, you know, invalidate all my comments. But, like, from an outsider looking in, seeing the odd TikTok about it, seeing people talk about it online, it just seems totally crazy just because it's like in that foundational part. So it's like people are rushing to build the foundations of cryptocurrency because it's being more validated or whatever you want to say. And therefore it just becomes this, this, like, it's just like whenever I see something about crypto, um, like on TikTok or whatever, I immediately get like really bad anxiety because I'm just thinking to myself, like, I might be missing out on this, but I don't really want to go into this because every person's advice is different. Like it's a whole thing. And like I said, I'm a complete outsider. I don't friggin' know. Uh, you know, if you, if you, if you want to talk to me about crypto, I mean, do it up. Hit up the HTML social channels. Let me know because I don't know anything. Um, but what I've been working on this week, something new, actually. So, uh, Mike kind of let me know that I, uh, or Mike and I had a discussion about whether I should be furthering my skills because I went more business and I still kind of am. Uh, so this week I have been working on Svelte, actually. So Mike actually tweeted out a little picture of me getting Svelte working. I had to do some Node.js stuff and blah, blah, blah to get it all working because I had some outdated versions, but I got everything up and up and running, everything working, and, um, I've been learning it. So what I'm what I my, my last thing I did was I'm I'm making, like, a little trucking game. Like, it's not going to be all graphics and stuff. It's just, like, for me to learn, like, how do I store numbers and how do I update numbers and, like, how do I have different, like, classes which are different trucks and stuff like that. So I'm making this, like, little trucker game, little, like, economy game. But I'm still at that point where I'm just sort of, like, not really making the game. I'm just playing. And so the last thing I did was I have, like, the main... So I started from, like, the template project that Svelte gives you. So I have, like, the main app on Svelte. And then I made like a, I mean, I don't remember the exact names, but I made like a truck.svelte, which generates a little like box. And that little box has a bunch of data in it. And then I could have wrote the script right in there, but just so I can learn how to like hop what I'm calling hopping scripts, I made a separate JS file, make an array. And then I like told the Svelte, uh, the truck.svelte to pull that data in effectively. And then I told app.svelte to render the different, uh, little blocks in like an L.I., like a, or an unordered list, a U.L. with a bunch of L.I.s. So that's done. Uh, I mean, it looks horrible and all the oh, rest right. of it, of course. But like, I mean, I did it. So I have a, a triple a triple hop <laughs> from JS to Svelte and then Svelte to Svelte. That's so, pretty awesome. So I got that working. Uh, what was crazy about it was like, I got the JS and like the scripting done in honest, I mean, it's pretty simple, but like I'm new to it. So in literally about three minutes, and then I like I screwed up an import line and that took me an hour to find out what was going on because I was it's, it's one of those things where I'm not going to get like super long winded here because Mike has limited time today. But uh, it was one of those things where like I was trying to do it the Svelte way, but you're actually supposed to do it the like the JavaScript way. And like I was I'm not quite at the level where I'm like, I know where Svelte begins and where JavaScript begins and ends. Like, I don't know where the ending and beginning point of these two things are yet. So I keep thinking like, where's the Svelte thing for this? But you're not supposed to use the Svelte thing for this because maybe there even isn't one. So it's just I'm getting there. I'm getting there slowly. Uh, I'm going to just start hitting the ground hard now and actually try to build out a game. So I have to kind of design it a bit because I'm kind of just like, what numbers do I need? Like, I'm at that point. So I'm going to mess around with that a little bit uh, and that'll uh, help me my JavaScript skills as well. And uh, it won't be marketable or anything, but I'm sure I'll show it off on social because I'll be proud of it and Look at my chucker game that everyone else can make in twelve minutes, and it took me two months. But anyway, um, that's that's what I've been doing. Interesting, Svelte is interesting, and uh, I'm sure I'll be updating the website and everything else like that as I go.
3: That's exciting. I'm hoping that we have another Svelte episode in the coming weeks so that we can kind of talk talk the uh, the framework talk. For talk, the first time. talk
1: shop, talk shop yeah. together instead of me just asking like, what's a variable, Mike? <laughs> what, what, <laughs> it's which, all that, which
3: has its own value, really, like the, the, the you know, the un- like the newer perspective. But I do want to have that conversation once you're a little bit more seasoned uh, in in frameworks. And I want to kind of bring it into perspective with all the other stuff that I've been doing and try to get your kind of mindset on it. So that may, maybe it'll be like a secret episode again but this time from Ooh. my end. oh Yeah. So I'll come up with the questions and stuff like that, and it'll be framework centered. So
0: that's all cool right.
1: Mm-hmm. That sounds all right. All right. Well, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm down for that. I'm, I've never thought for some reason, I just never even thought of a reverse mystery episode, I guess. But uh, I mean, here we are. That sounds, that sounds <laughs> pretty good to me. I don't know why I didn't think of that. It's like, oh, it's a brand new idea. It's just the same, but a different person like freaking out over here. Yeah. Um, It's probably like the three coffees that are in me right now, and I'm like ferociously tapping my foot at the moment, to be totally blunt. (laughs) Um, But anyway, uh, I know, Mike, you have to leave, so I'm just going to wrap the show up. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Carson. And remember, we're on Patreon. If you did enjoy it, that's patreon.com slash things. Check out the tiers, and give that a go. Many thanks to our $3 tier patron Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript on youtube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript, Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design on localpathcomputing.com. Ryan Gatchell from Blue Black Digital on blueblackdigital.com, Chris from Self-Made Web Designer on selfmadewebdesigner.com, Tim from The Web Hacker at TheWebHacker.com, DL Ford from DL4.io, Bib hash dash from NineBlockMedia on NineBlockMedia.com, Jason from Geek Live Radio via Geek Live radio.com and michael curie from mc web studio via mcwebstudio.ca feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on and this outro will sign us off
0: you've been listening to html all the things podcast Signing off.